The Lord is with you. Thank you, that's good to know. (laughs) A prelude is a big deal to a musician. A prelude establishes the context for what is to follow. This is true for a particular piece of music. It is true for an entire worship service. The prelude gives some hints about how to process what you are about to encounter. Our scripture passage for this morning has a remarkable prelude. It is nothing less than the transfiguration. Jesus has taken his senior staff on a mountaintop retreat, and it was one of those rare times when heaven comes down and scripture comes alive. Jesus relaxed on that retreat and allowed himself to glow. And Elijah and Moses on retreat from heaven to spend a little time with Jesus who's on earth conversed with him as if they were talking over old times. The always thin veil between heaven and earth was but a mist here. Peter, James, and John observed all of this and words had left James and John but Peter still had a few. Rabbi, he said. Rabbi? Rabbi, isn't there another title, a bigger title for a teacher who glows? Elijah and Moses stopped by to visit with this rabbi. Peter's response to seeing such a sight was, Rabbi, let's turn this into a permanent retreat site. Obviously, Peter didn't know what to say, for he and the other two disciples were terrified. At least James and John had sense enough to observe a time of silence until some sort of appropriate prayer or praise could be uttered. A cloud came over them to shield their eyes. A little late for that. A cloud came over them. They'd already seen Jesus glowing. They'd already seen Elijah and Moses. I think the cloud came over them in order to shield them from the sight of a miffed God. Not an angry one, but a miffed one. For the, from the cloud, God said, this is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. I think the admonition to pay attention was more akin to keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth shut. When the cloud left, Peter, James, and John saw only Jesus. Moses and Elijah had gone back up, and Peter, James, and John, and Jesus headed back down. They walked into our scripture passage for this morning in a scene not unlike what you feel and face when the vans pull back into the church parking lot. This is the prelude to our passage for this morning. Something's fixing to happen. When Jesus and the guys joined back up with the disciples who had been left behind to keep the ministry going, they walked into a scene of dusty, noisy turmoil. Jesus addressed the scribes who seemed to be the spokespersons for the crowd. What are you arguing with my disciples about? Before they could form a respectable response, a man in the crowd answered, Jesus My son is possessed, so I brought him to you, but you weren't here. So I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, and they couldn't do it. 
That's right, shouted the opportunistic scribes. Your disciples can't live up to the hype. We knew it all along. Just a little earlier, Jesus was with a couple of the great heroes of the faith from earlier generations. The scene has changed. You faithless generation, says the fully human Jesus. How much longer must I be among you? And with that, he lumped the whole crowd into one group. The mountaintop disciples, the valley disciples, the scribes, the herd instinct crowd, the whole bunch, he says, constitutes a faithless generation. A fully divine Jesus does have a fully human last nerve. Well, truth of the matter is that the stricken boy's father has a little bit of something that might pass for faith, but he's about half afraid to say so after Jesus' declaration of them all being faithless. But the worn-out father's desperation has defeated all filters of discretion. Jesus calls for the boy to be brought to him, and the demon hit the boy with another convulsion on the way. And above the noise through the dust, the boy's father speaks from the depths of his helplessness. If you still can, says the father, given all that's going on here, if you're still able, have pity on us and help us desperate. Like the earlier blessing of the fish and the loaves, Jesus accepts the half portion of faith, lifts it up, and shows it to be enough and casts out forever the unclean spirit. Now that would be a great place to end the story. And you know Mark must have been tempted to do so and get on to something else. But when Jesus looked up to perform the miracle, He saw out of the corner of his eye the balance of the crowd of this great gathering rushing toward him. The boy who had been healed was in deep peace for the first time in his life and the folks around him who knew him thought he was dead. Jesus didn't have time to explain. He took the boy by the hand, helped him up, handed him off to the father, then Jesus ran to the house where the disciples had already retreated. Now I have an idea that what's true now was probably true then. When the boss walks in and closes the door, something's up. Jesus had just escaped a mob that formed when the disciples couldn't do what they had been given the authority to do, and I can almost hear Peter leaning over to John and whispering, this ain't going to be no parable. And he was right. Sometimes the disciples were a little slow, but given what had just happened, one of the more insightful among them decided to beat Jesus to the punch. Maybe that would soften the blow. Rabbi, sir, why couldn't we cast it out? Why were we ineffective? He's banking on the fact that Jesus likes confession. Jesus' reply is that what they just encountered was a demon of another sort demon all of its own. As I read and listened to this passage, the demon of which Jesus speaks, the one that tripped up the disciples and stirred up the scribes, appears to me to be the demon that stalks every ministry I know of. It follows us around. It follows us even to mountaintop experiences, but it can't get a good foothold up there. But it does follow us back down the mountain to the mundane level of everyday life. 
This particular demon is patient. It can wait until the glow fades. This particular demon twists the fiery faces of the scribes who keep track of our every move and word and misstep. This particular demon stirs the unrealistic expectations and demands of the fevered crowd and then stampedes that crowd toward us. This demon jumps in the middle of our fatigue and convinces us of the futility of our work and the finality of our weakness. This demon can take a dust devil and make it look like an F5 tornado and we believe it. But there is a one-two punch that can take the demon down. It is the combination of prayer, of confession, and pronouncement of blessing. My vessel of faith is half empty, says the humble father. Nah, it's half full, says the rabbi, and the miracle is done. This particular demon, says Jesus, though, in the little conflab, this particular demon can only be cast out by prayer. But Jesus didn't pray over the boy. Didn't have time. He saw the crowd coming. That's what it takes, he says to the guys. That's what it takes, he says to the disciples. Prayer. That's what it takes. That's what happened out there. This kind can only be cast out by prayer. Why does the word prayer in Jesus' short speech sting us so? Why does it sting? This can only be cast out by prayer. Is Jesus being sarcastic? He was fully human. I don't think so. Jesus didn't pray, but the boy's father did, perhaps unknowingly. His prayer was, Jesus, if you will, if you can, heal my boy. It sounds like a prayer to me. In fact, it sounds rather familiar to me. My brothers and sisters, dis disciples all, it may be that the crowd and the scribes and the accusations and the immediacy, immediacy of real need is getting to us, causing us in mild panic to forget who has given us our authority. Our call to minister as Jesus ministered and to do even greater things was not issued by a mere friend. Our authority does not come from a mere teacher. We handle holy things around here to the point that we might think of Jesus as, as simply the most religious of our covenant group or the most insightful of our professors. Disciples, the one who calls us and gives us authority is the one who can call Elijah and Moses back to earth. The one who calls us to minister and then ministers through us is the one who glows with the glory of God. We see Jesus rowing to get away from the crowd and we forget that he could just as easily have walked. We see Jesus praying for plan B in the garden and we forget that he is sweating blood. We talk to or about Jesus every day. That's what we do here. Because of that, we might forget from time to time that talking to Jesus is prayer. And that's because prayer is how one talks to God. This demon, weary disciple, can only be cast out when you remember that your friend and teacher is God. God the Son, the Son of God in whom the Father is pleased, the very beloved of the Creator. Familiarity must not cause us to forget that we are called by equipped by, 
strengthened by, accompanied by God, God the Son. This kind, Jesus said, will not be defeated by the occasional mountaintop experience, not even the recent mountaintop experience. This demon will not be defeated by authority of your title or the intensity of your study. This kind will not be defeated by stories of past victories or past glory. This kind of demon will not be defeated because Jesus is your friend or your life companion or your teacher. This kind of demon will only be defeated when we remember that we are on God's mission. This kind, said Jesus, can only be cast out by prayer. Prayer, the act of talking to God. The discipline of remembering who Jesus is so that his authority might be our confidence, our strength, our hope. Jesus' mild scolding of the disciples isn't because that he's insulted, that he's not being given respect due to him. He's not a young professor with a new doctorate. Jesus is putting things back into proper perspective for our sake, for the sake of the kingdom, and for the sake of half-believing, desperate people who come to us as disciples, wanting to know if what they've heard about God the Son is true. Pay attention, the voice from the cloud said. See that Jesus is God. Scripture does not name the demon in this passage, but if I may be so bold, I think I know his name. My son, said his father in verse 17, has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. There it is. There's the evidence. There's the clue. Look at who can speak in the passage. And who can't. Adults who are energized by your arguments, the demon doesn't care if you speak, shout away. Defensive disciples, always trying to prove yourself and shore up your position, talk all you want. Demon doesn't care. Squeaky clean scribe, taking careful notes and, and nagging, it, doesn't, it does a demon's heart good. Go for it. In this passage, the demon only stopped the tongue of the child in their midst. A child speaks hope. This demon can't allow that. A child speaks trust. A child speaks faith. This demon has silenced the voice of the child, the beautiful voice of hope and trust and faith. This demon's name is doubt. But he can be defeated. Like the desperate father, we must own our own doubt, confess it, and say the demon's name to Jesus. And in the same prayer, claim what faith we do have left. The demon's name is doubt, and he can't stand up to faith, nor hope. Not even a little bit. Sometimes we get a little careless. We get a little casual about our faith. We discount our faith's importance or misplace it because we are friends with Jesus. We study Jesus and we want to believe that Jesus can be seen in us. Must we pray to one who is with us every day? In your hymnal, there's a baptized war song. It's a hymn that just won't go away. 
been here since the Civil War. It's often called the Battle Hymn of the Republic, also known as Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. It's included in scores of hymnals. The number in our book is 439. And we're not going to sing it. Because including war songs in a hymnal is risky business. Stanza two of Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory states, He, Jesus, has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never sound retreat. Oh, not so in Mark chapter 9. Jesus walks into the chapter having just been on a retreat. Jesus heals a boy and then beats a hasty retreat to the room where his disciples are already huddled. The door was closed and Jesus began to put things back into proper perspective. I think he did so by the use of one key word, the one that stings, prayer. I think the word suggests, remember who I am. It will give you confidence. Remember who I am. Use the word prayer if it will help you remember. This kind can only be cast out by prayer. And we're reminded, oh yeah, God with us. Jesus and the disciples retreated for much needed regrouping. Retreat can mean charging in the opposite direction for the good of the cause. You want a song to sing in response to Mark 9? By the way, I didn't give these songs to Rick. You want a song to sing in response to Mark 9? I suggest we put aside, mine eyes have seen the glory, therefore let us march on. That hymn leads us too close to triumphalism. I suggest our retreat song song should be 120 in that book. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, his name is called Emmanuel. God with us, revealed in us. His name is called Emmanuel. Retreat to your office, to your study, to your special place and close the door, even if it's the car door behind you as you head up the trail. Retreat and pray, remembering that the Christ in you is God indeed. And if the word prayer triggers that remembering, then remember this. This demon can only be cast out by prayer, by that God in you and with you. In reading this passage with this morning's chapel in mind, the Spirit showed this professor of Christian ministry a picture of Christian ministry, sure enough. Christian ministry is grinding and glorious, both. It is crowded and it's lonely. It is success and it's failure. Christian ministry is mountaintop and valley. Christian ministry reveals that Jesus comforts and challenges. Christian ministry is pleasure and pain. I have taken away from this reading something more than an attempt at a sermon. I've been reminded of the importance of getting away from the crowd, and Jesus taught me. I've been taught the importance, reminded of the importance of getting with Jesus and closing the door, sometimes with other disciples and sometimes just Jesus and me. I've taken away the important reminder that the doubt that would render Christian ministry ineffective can only be defeated by prayer. And this prayer is not to the first among equals. 
It is to God the three in one in the name of God the Son, Emmanuel. I have been reminded that doubt doesn't slow God down, it slows me down. But when confessed, Jesus will absorb it. Absorb it. Who was with him on the cross? Scribes in your face? Get with Jesus and close the door because he's God. Is the crowd that's rushing toward you a reminder that retreat may well be the better part of valor? Then get with Jesus and close the door for he alone is God. Is there a cloud of dust between you and the trail back up the mountaintop retreat? Get with Jesus and close the door. He is the God of Elijah and Moses. He can bring him where he wants them. Has the roar of expectation and demand drowned out the still small voice? You know what to do. Get with Jesus and close the door. Has Jesus called, has the Jesus who called you lost some of his glow and become a little bit more dusty to you? Get with Jesus and close the door. Not to talk things over with your friend, not for another lesson from your teacher. Close the door and talk to Emmanuel, God with us. God, the Holy Spirit, will deal with your doubt, interpreting its hesitant words, blessing its half measure. Do you know this demon named doubt? Then let the word prayer put the word familiarity in its proper place. In doing so, the phrase God the Son will put the phrase Jesus is my friend in its proper place. Get alone with Jesus, close the door, and hear him say, this kind can only be cast out by prayer. My name is Emmanuel. Let's talk. Amen.